Well, I, uh, I've missed a class two of the last three Wednesdays. Uh, so if I say anything that is repetitive, uh, forgive me for that. Um, of course, all of these, all of these uh, texts are coming out of the same broader context of Hebrews 11. And a lot of them just fit into uh, uh, themes. Um, Later on in the lesson, I'm going to refer us to uh, a reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, for example. And I thought to myself, I wonder if anybody else has brought that in because it sounds so, um, it, it sounds so Hebrews-ish um, that it seems a, a, good, uh, a good one to bring in as a, as a um, kind of a support text for what we're talking about. Uh, Carol and I have been on... Um, um, our, our fall breaks and uh, last, uh, last week um, I stayed home nursing an injury um, and she said well we got to, we got to tell the class about that they, uh, they might think it's funny to hear what you did to yourself and I said well I have greater and higher faith in them than that they'll, they'll have sympathy for me um, <laughs> Most of the time I'm outside at school these days and in and out of the facilities department. And I was walking, I, I tell you this, not to eat up time, we probably won't have enough time tonight, but, but Carol urged me to do it, so I'll go ahead and tell you about it. And, and then you might, you might prevent yourselves from doing the same thing. I was carrying a, a shovel uh, into the area behind the shop at school, I'm not paying attention to what I was doing. Uh, and I, the handle of it ran into a post and jammed this thing back into my rib. And I wasn't even walking fast, but it almost made me double over. And it's been one of those, one of those things that um, hurt when you cough and sneeze, roll over in the bed. And it's just, uh, so I, I stayed home last week and put an ice pack on it. And uh, so I may not know as well as I should what all's been going on in class, but um, I've, we missed everybody and looking forward to the study tonight. Um, the, uh, the list of, of faith exemplars in Hebrews chapter 11 um, is presented in cycles. Well, we, we know that already very well by now. Uh, within this historical summary of, uh, of the Bible um, and that was the Bible of the early church, the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, the primitive cycle um, that uh, Adam and Enoch and Noah, um, Abel, Enoch and Noah, I should say, um, uh, kick off this hall of faith uh, uh, summary. And then the Abraham cycle comes next. Uh, who taught class last week? Was it Alan or was it David? Alan? Uh, he taught the, the Abraham uh, epic from that, that cycle. And then tonight, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, 20 through 22, conclude the Abraham cycle with a very brief mention of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Uh, and in, in each case... These patriarchs act out of faith near the very end of their lives. Take a note of that. This, uh, what, what the Hebrews preacher mentions about these three, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, 
These are coming in their last days, if not their last hours or minutes even. So let's read this uh, text, Hebrews 10, 20 through 22. Hebrews, I'm sorry, 10. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 20 through 22. By faith, Jacob. Uh, by faith, Isaac, verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction <clears throat> about his bones. When um, uh, Alan was uh, checking with Dave and Gary and me and about what text to choose, I just kind of gravitated toward this one because I love, I love this whole epic of the, the, the Abraham the Abraham stories and his immediate descendants. Just love those stories. Um, the, the poignant moment, for example, of Abraham acting against every parental instinct when he submitted to God's command to kill his own son. I can't imagine um, the anguish that he must have felt uh, during that time. Uh, I love the story of Eliezer, uh, though he's anonymous in Genesis chapter 24, he's almost certainly the one that goes to Chaldea to find Rebekah. And when you think about it, those two, Eliezer and Rebekah, even though there's not a whole lot of information about, about them, particularly Eliezer, uh, they, the decisions that they made, the things that they did by faith would, uh, would, uh, uh, would rank them as being deserving of being in, in Hebrews chapter 11 by their own right. Uh, and then we have, of course, Jacob and Rebekah tricking Esau, uh, uh, tricking Isaac and Esau out of his birthright and uh, blessing. And then Jacob getting back some of his own when he, uh, uh, when he uh, uh, had to work for his father-in-law Laban for 20 years. Uh, which is probably a good thing when you think about it because it probably took about 20 years for Esau to cool down and not feel so murderous. That thought just came to me when I was reflecting on this. Uh, 20 years might have seemed like a long time for Jacob, but uh, it's probably about the amount of time he needed to be able to return safely and not, uh, not be the, the murderous object of his, uh, of his brother. I love reading about the 12 patriarchs and the mischief that they cause and the mischief that they get into. But, but I think my favorite of all is the story of Joseph and his riches to rags to riches uh, story. One of the greatest reversals of fortune narratives, uh, I believe, in all of literature. And I think a lot of people would say the same thing. And um, the marvelous thing about these stories is that we accept by faith that they happened just the way they are described uh, in the uh, Genesis account records. In each of these sagas, there are individual stories of the ups and the downs and the defeats and the victories of life lived in faith before God. All of these were flawed people. That point's been made several times before in this class who failed as often as they succeeded. Um, but we can take heart and encouragement, I think, in this, that their mistakes gradually 
contributed to making them by God's grace into the people that they were when they took their last breath. Uh, They had, some of them, bad beginnings, slow beginnings, uh, marked by mistakes, a lot of trips along the way. But God worked with those and through those so that by the end of their lives, God had fashioned them into the kind of people that we now in the Hebrews um, Hebrews congregation could look back to and and get some encouragement when they really needed it. Um, So let's look at this. uh, Let's look at the faith of Isaac and of Jacob and of Joseph. And there are handouts. If you don't have one, I think they're back on that uh, chair back there. You know, if, if you'd ever, if you had never read Hebrews 11, but you knew that it featured the lives of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, what would you have anticipated the chapter would accentuate in their lives? I'll, I'll bet you it's not what's actually in chapter 11, 20 through 22. Because <laughs> uh, it seems really anticlimactic. I jumped at the chance to teach from, from this part of the cycle, and then I got into it and was, was reminded what uh, the Hebrews preacher said about him, and I thought, why, why did I choose this? Um, here are some better selections at first blush. Uh, let me suggest some of these. By faith, Isaac built an altar to the Lord at Beersheba and called on the name of the Lord. Now that has a nice ring to it. But that's not what the Hebrews preacher chose. Um, how about this one from Jacob's story? By faith, Jacob endured 20 years under his taskmaster, father-in-law. Seven years before he could even marry the woman of his dreams. Any of you ever worked for your father-in-law before? I worked for my father-in-law. Two or three summers, fall breaks, spring breaks. Uh, but at least I got to marry the girl before I had to, uh, <laughs> before I had to do that. Um, how about this one from Joseph's life? By faith, Joseph resisted the alluring advances of Potiphar's wife and maintained his integrity. Now, that's the one I would have chosen. I mean, that's an amazing, amazing story. All of that pressure on this young man to just give in, just just do this. I'll never say anything. We'll never be discovered. You'll be my little pet and favorite in the court and everything will just go on fine. But, and, and that would have been the easy thing to do, especially as things played out. So I was struck, as you probably are, with the preacher's choice of faith anecdotes from the lives of these three patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. All the really exciting stories he could have drawn from, but he chooses Isaac's blessings of his sons, Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, and Joseph not blessing anyone, just giving instructions about what to do with his bones when they finally get to leave Egypt and go to the promised land. So how in the world are we supposed to preach with that? I draw three things from these uh, examples of faith. Now, your little section there only has two. Uh, I was uh, was, uh, reflecting on this this afternoon, and I added an additional one. I added it to the beginning. I should have made it number three. I made it a new number one. Um, 
because I, I was thinking that this, this was important too. First, um, this is the one that's not on your list. They, they each saw something or God revealed it more like that others could not see. Let that just sink in for a minute. They each saw something that nobody else in their company could see. Isaac blessed the second born, Jacob, rather than Esau, the firstborn. Now, I don't know if there was any social penalty for, the, for this, but at the very least, it went against social convention. Remember that Isaac blessed Jacob a second time, and I had to be reminded about this. It had been a while since I'd read through the book of Genesis. Uh, and this time, he did it willingly. It's in Genesis chapter 28, but he, it's right before he, he says, I don't want you marrying any of these pagan women around here. I want you to go back to, the, to my homeland, back where my kinfolk are, and I want you to go. They were probably pagans too, but at least they were pagans who were family, right? Um, and I want you to go back there. I want you to take one of those wives back in, back in Chaldea. Uh, and then he repeats, he repeats to, um, to Jacob the essence of the Abrahamic promise as he does that this time knowing full well what he was doing, no tricks, no deception. And so I wonder what, what happened in the intervening days or weeks or, or months. Perhaps Rebecca or God or both in the meantime had persuaded Isaac that this was the right thing, the God, godly, the faithful thing to do. You know, spiritual devotion was not uh, Esau's strong suit. And while Jacob was not a great spiritual giant yet. You could argue that didn't happen until the incident at Jabbok, um, but uh, he was still the far better choice. Even centuries later, Esau's descendants, the Edomites, will have numerous run-ins with their distant cousins, the Israelites. Uh, go back and read um, the, the imprecatory Psalm, Psalm 137, uh, where they're talking about the Edomites who allied with the Babylonians to destroy the Israelites. And it's a prayer to God that they, might, that they might recompense in turn what the Edomites and the Babylonians had done to them, dashing their children up against rocks. Uh, we have a hard time with, uh, with, uh, with Psalms like that. And uh, later on, when, if we're studying the Psalms, we can talk about things like that. But that's, that's what the Edomites became I think a lot of that has to do with the kind of patriarch they had. Jacob was the, was the patriarch. The Israel was the patriarch of all those who came after him. And they had a lot of troubles of their own. But Edom, by all accounts, were just godless, uh, a godless, treacherous, uh, murderous people. Uh, Jacob, similarly, went against convention when he not only gave Joseph the double portion rather than Reuben, a lot of good reasons for that we won't get into, but he put his right hand of blessing on Ephraim, whom Joseph had placed here to Joseph's lap. He'd put, he'd put, uh, he'd put Ephraim over here, Manasseh over here, and 
And remember, Jacob had to cross his hands to put his right hand on Ephraim, the secondborn. Again, an odd thing, an unconventional thing to do. And Joseph was a little bit upset about it for, for a while. No father. Uh, and he tried to switch, switch his hands back. And he said, no, no, my son, it's, it's going to be this way. He saw something that Joseph did not see. Uh, and then um, Joseph um, uh, revealed to his, uh, his, 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 uh, his uh, brothers that um, uh, they would one day leave Egypt and that they would go to the land God had promised to Abraham. And he made them promise to take his remains to the land, and uh, they were faithful to that. You can go back, and, or you can go ahead and look at Exodus chapter 13, Joshua 24, and see that indeed is what they did. After 400 and uh, some odd years, it's interesting to me that who was it that had been charged with that task? Was one of the tribes charged with that task? That's something maybe I should already know. Levites, maybe, I don't know. Um, but that someone was charged with the task of, of keeping, um, keeping the whereabouts known of where Joseph's bones were and then, then taking them away. And they had to be faithful to that. Well, that was the first, uh, first consideration, first thing to notice. Second, and this is uh, the, the outline of this is on your handout. Uh, when they acted in faith, they were very near death in each case. When each of these three, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, acted in faith, they were very near death. Uh, they were breathing their last. Their, their, their days, hours were numbered. In fact, all these faith examples are presented situationally at the very end of their lives. Death is immediately in view. Isaac tells Esau he is old and does not know the day of his death. Translation of that is, I can die any day now, son. I can die any day. 11.21 says that Jacob, when he was dying, indeed, the Genesis story reads as though he just barely got all his last instructions out before he pulled his feet back up under his bed, pulled the blanket over him, and he, and he was gone. It, it reads like that when you go back to Genesis. And then verse 22, Joseph, when his end was near. So these were all Hebrews 11, 13 people. All these people were still living by faith when they died. And I think that that's one of the primary, one of the primary points we we're supposed to take from this. They had fought the good fight. They had finished their race. They had, uh, they had lasted all the way through to the end. And when the end came, they were looking ahead to what God's promised future was. And we'll talk more about that in a minute but they believed it all the way to the end. Uh, let me take a, just a little side excursion here and just uh, make an observation from my own life. Um, I am not in my last days or hours, let us hope. You never know. But health-wise, I'm not reaching that time. And so, uh, you know, I've got however much more time the Lord's going to give me. But I'm old enough to be able to think back to my younger days um, and project into my older life 
what I thought would have been or thought would be just an, just an easier, just an easier road to hope, a smoother, straighter path that my life would be on faith-wise. I'm not talking about all the other stuff, um, but faith-wise. You know, you're, you're 25, you're 30, and uh, you think, boy, you know, faith is a struggle now, but when I get to, be, when I get to that age, it'll just be, it'll be a piece of cake, walk in the park. That's not, that's not my, that's not my situation. Uh, I, you know, I, I find, I find myself all too often in, in those same little dark cavernous recesses of my mind where temptation dwells. And uh, as, as much now I may, I may after 50 years of, of, um, living in Christ. I may, I may get down on my knees faster. Uh, I, may re, I may repent harder, uh, but still the, struggles, uh, still the struggles are there. So I think this is something we cannot take too much for granted that these folks um, in the Hebrews narrative, they lasted all the way to the end, just like those giants of faith in New Testament times did. Um, and, and that's a uh, that's an encouraging thing to me. You know, that's what I want to, to do. Uh, uh, however any of us began, we all want to finish well. We want to, we want to finish solid, uh, solid in Christ. <clears throat> so in the face of death, they clung to a familiar hope and they were able to see their place in a great unfolding master plan of God. That's one of the lessons that we take. Third, third thing, and this is number two on yours, each one acted in that moment of approaching death with a vision of a desired future that they accepted by faith had been orchestrated already and was being executed or would be executed in the future by God. Uh, Robert Wilson uh, wrote one of the commentaries that I, um, that I conferred with. It's the New Century Bible Commentary on Hebrews, if you're interested. He said this, In each case, the person concerned is looking to the future, to things hoped for, things not seen. The person is concerned, person concerned is looking to the future. Right at the very end of their life on earth, they're looking to the future, to things hoped for. Of course, that idea is thematic. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Among other things, faith then is prospective in nature. It's, it's looking forward, spective, spectacles. It's pro, it's ahead, it's, it's forward looking. Faith looks that way. It's prospective in nature. It's being able to see out there even when things right now are so horrible and nasty and pressing and discouraging, it's being able to see out there beyond the now. So with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, they were able to envision, cast their imaginations, if you will, into a hoped for future. Well, there should be a next little heading, extending vision into the beyond. Is that what it says or something like that? Extending vision into the beyond. The preacher to the Hebrews 
was not challenging them to see the spiritual world behind the veil of the physical world. You know, Paul does that in Ephesians chapter 6. He's talking about spiritual warfare and like, I want you all to know that you, you don't struggle against flesh and blood. Your struggle against those principalities and powers that you cannot see. There is this, there is, we, live, we live in this physical realm. The, the ones you're struggling against live in this spiritual realm that you can't see. They're hidden from view. And that's a, that's a good thing for us to be contemplating, but that's not what the Hebrews preacher is urging the Hebrews folks in the, in the congregation there to do. Um, have any of you read the Frank Peretti books, the dark, his two darkness books? It's been a long time since I've read them. This present darkness and then piercing the darkness. Um, haven't read them in a long time, but that, that's what he does very masterfully. He, he uh, creates, a, he creates a, a story in which there are folks who are battling against uh, human beings who are being prompted by um, uh, dark forces in the spiritual realms. Um, it's um, uh, so the, the Hebrews writer is not doing that, nor is he even urging his audience to look into a worldly future beyond their own era of distress. He's not urging them to look at the spiritual realm they can't see in this life, in this world. And he's not, he's not urging them to look into a future 50 years, 100 years, 200 years in advance. Um, that's what he was telling them that the Hebrews 11 Old Testament characters did. Seeing their unseen was looking into God's future of their own people. But what the Hebrews writer is asking them to do is to project their thinking into an eternal future where things will be so much better, much preferred, this wonderful vision of this life beyond this one. Something like what Moses did. Moses is on that mountain. He's permitted to look beyond over into the promised land, but he's not permitted to go there. Um, the Hebrews writer is, is challenging his people to look beyond into this, uh, into, this, into this eternal future. For a congregation at the risk of cashing everything in, giving up on God, giving up on faith, um, concluding that all this suffering that we're presently going through all the suffering that might even be worse that we might be asked to go through right now. It's not persecution to death, but that might be coming. Uh, they, were, they were very close to just chucking it all. Forget about this. Let's go, let's, let's, let's live life easier than this. It's an easier way to make it through this life. So the Hebrews preacher is hoping to recast their vision into an eternity from one of despair to, to hope, from one of present defeat to future victory, from pain now to bliss then. You know, the, the, the best sermons, the best songs, the best liturgies that are, are the ones that speak to the current need that we have. And I haven't, I haven't done the research other than just thinking a little bit in my own mind. Jim could, uh, could uh, expound on this probably a whole lot uh, uh, more and better than I could. Um, 
But I'm guessing that many, if not most, of our hymns about heaven were written during times of hardship rather than times of plenty and ease. A time that I would say even, even during the current unrest, can we say, uh, a time far different than our own. And I just checked out a few songs. There is a habitation. You know that one. We sing it since we're a little bit. There is a habitation. 1882. Written in 1882. Think, think about that. Think of what life was like at that time. Hard living, probably rural living, short lifespans. Uh, uh, giving birth was 50-50 was, was proposition if there were complications. Um, food, uh, comfort were uncertain things. I mean, it's a, it was a, it's a hard time. We look back to those times, you know, farm life and it's idyllic, but it, it was hard, hard, hard living. Uh, when all of God's singers get home, middle of the depression. No tears in heaven, middle of the depression. In the sweet by and by, I didn't know this, Jim. In the sweet by and by, three years after the end of the Civil War, during Reconstruction, when people were still reeling from the death and the destruction of the Civil War. Uh, what we've come to call the old Negro spirituals have their birth in the burdens of either slavery or the years of, of oppression and injustice after that. And I make that point simply to say this, you know, um, some, uh, some current uh, New Testament scholars, and I'm not criticizing it, um, Tom Wright for one, says that Christians oftentimes dwell too much on the hereafter to the neglect of the here and now. And to some extent, I, I, th I think that may be the case. But I suppose that fixation on a desirable future is determined by the life situation of believers in, in the here and now. Um, it's not a good thing to just anticipate a better future. The Thessalonians made that mistake. They were so focused on the second coming of Jesus they had given up taking care of business on earth. That's a good lesson to receive. Thank you, Paul, and thank you, Dr. Wright. But, but I, st I still believe that a strong sense of coming and future events, a strong eschatology yields a healthy ethic and morality, as well as a robust sense of kingdom service. Uh, Peter the Apostle certainly thought so. Uh, I'm not gonna have you turn to, to 2 Peter chapter three, We're running out of time. I'll just read it real quickly. Uh, an extended version, and, and listen to how he urges his people to a better, to a better life, to better behavior, to, to greater faith. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's, that's the eschatos. That's, that's the coming time, the coming amazing big change time. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Our behavior, our faith, the essence of who we are being determined by what we see coming in the future. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward. He's going, to, he's going to repeat words like this two more times in this passage. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. 
So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Because you anticipate this coming, the absolute certainty of it, then I want you to live blameless, spotless lives at peace with God right now. Your, your eschatology determining how you live in the right now and the right here. Three times Peter uses the expression looking forward and, and look at the vision that he casts of that future that we're looking forward to, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Where righteousness dwells. Do you not long to live in that place? I long to live in that time when I don't have to worry about my car being stolen. It's just a thing. It's just a thing. I, I'm not, it, it's not my greatest concern, but it's a big hassle getting it back, right? Uh, live in a time when we, we don't lose babies and to live in a time when we don't have to worry about someone breaking through our door at night and, and, um, and hurting us and our families. Look forward to a, a time when righteousness dwells where righteousness dwells. Um, you know, when, when uh, a lot of times, especially people of, 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 of our maturity and, and older, and I think even a little younger, we take encouragement by looking back. You know what I'm, where I'm going with this? We take encouragement by looking back to the good old days. Tell me, t tell, see if you can tell me what uh, product this is advertising. I remember our, our old country home with clean, fresh air and flowers growing in the field along the path beside our swimming hole. Mama hollering through the screen, would you kids like some homemade ice cream? That was such a simple time and place. <laughs> Bluebell ice cream. I wish I could remember the tune. I would have sung it. it we, we look back. I grew up in, uh, 10 miles outside of Neosho, Missouri, farm in between Granby and Boulder City. Residents of both were about 10 people. And you think I'm kidding here, but the only time I ever remember my mother and father locking the doors of our house was when we went to California on a three-week vacation. We never locked the doors. This sounds like a cliche, but I really believe it's true. My father, and I bet your fathers and grandfathers were the same way, they considered a handshake and a verbal agreement as binding as a notarized contract. Um, whether it's correct or not, we tend, we tend to look back to a simpler, better time. In actuality, it was neither all good nor all bad. The Hebrew writer urges his congregation to look both forward and backward. Forward to a... To a beautiful, blissful vision, but backward, backwards to, to characters in their own histories. Um, we're going to run out of time before I uh, really wanted to get to something. So let me see what is good here to skip. Um, I want, us to, I want us to end up with that song, Jim, May All Who Come Behind Us Find Us Faithful. Um, and I'll, so I'll just say this in concluding, when Jim sings the song, we'll, we'll be dismissed. Um, just to say that, that the example of those folks back then for the Hebrews congregation, 
served to fortify the, the faith of men and women who lived thousands of years later. Um, when it really mattered, those folks, and for, our, for the topic, our topic tonight, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they stepped up and they lived out their faith. For us, we can hearken back to New Testament characters and we can hearken back to people who lived closer to our own times and our own histories, giants of faith. And if I had plenty of time, I'll bet we could stand here. In fact, I probably should have done that. Probably should have stopped talking 15, 20 minutes ago and just let each one of us come up with names of people who probably perhaps have passed before us, but who were tremendous examples of faith to me. I think about Cliff Gaines and uh, you know, Neil Pryor, people who had such a formative uh, impact on my life uh, when I was uh, in my college days. Um, this, they challenged me to a greater faith, looking forward to God's promised future, looking around and back on the lives and the faith of people who preceded me. It, it challenges me to a greater faith. And, and it challenged me to ask the question, what might I do more? How might I demonstrate faith further that would inspire my children, my grandchildren to a more heroic faith? I'm, I, I pray God that I've got few more years to do that. Um, some things I feel pretty good about. Some things I don't feel all that good about. God's still refining me as he's refining all of us. See everybody next week.